This is uh, John chapter 6, beginning at verse 24. Sorry, verse 16. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you very much for this chance to get together. We want to convene this special meeting of our session. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would send your sovereign spirit powerfully upon us. We ask you please to bless our time of reflection on your word. We pray, gracious God, that you would help us to understand it and to apply it correctly in our lives. And we pray, Father, for the men whom you have called to serve you as members of our session. We pray that you'd be especially close to them and their loved ones this Lord's Day, that you'd help them and all of us, Father, to grow more and more and more in our relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, once again, a warm welcome to you all to the meeting of the session and the meeting of Christ Church, uh, sorry, Metro Crest Presbyterian Church. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to be able to get together every Lord's Day and to look at the Bible. That's what we always do. That's very much the center of our life together is feeding on God's Word, uh, both in terms of opening the Bible and, and the sacrament, which is God's Word visible to us. And we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper next Sunday uh, here at Metro Crest. In the Bible, geography sheds light on theology. Um, that's something I've noticed in my time as a Bible student. Geography sheds light on theology. And I'd, I'd like to just remind you briefly of some of the geography we have covered so far in our study of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you remember, flip back a page or two to John chapter 1. In verse 28, we read about John the Baptist on the banks of the River Jordan. In verse 43, the Lord Jesus is described as calling his first disciples there in that same wilderness area. In verse 44, there's reference to Bethsaida. That was the hometown of Andrew, Peter, and Philip. That's up uh, on the shores, actually, uh, near the uh, Sea of Galilee. Uh, in uh, verse 45, there's the first mention in John's Gospel of Nazareth, also in this region, uh, further uh, away, but in the same region. And uh, then in John chapter 2, we have the story of the turning of water into wine in Cana of Galilee. 
Galilee. That's the name that will show up again and again through the Gospel of John, especially in these sections. Uh, it's just a few miles northeast of Nazareth. It's the site there in Cana of the, the first miracle and, the, and what John calls the first sign. Uh, there was in Cana a miracle that we read about where Jesus uh, did a, a, a great sign of something. Um, in John chapter 3, we read about Jesus being in Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem was a place of great significance to the Jewish people, the people of the Old Testament covenant. In John chapter 4, in verse 3, we read about Jesus being on his way to Galilee and passing through Samaria, a place which was peopled by pseudo-Jews who'd uh, been conquered and, and had uh, developed their own style of Judaism, the the Jews, the residents of Jerusalem, did not care for the people who lived in Samaria. It was a, a sort of a suspect area, highly suspect area. Um, but there Jesus encountered the woman of Samaria. And it was there in verses uh, um, 3 through 42 that the Lord works a great miracle in the life of this Samaritan woman. Uh, in John 4, verses 43 to 44, Jesus goes back to Galilee. In verse 45, he's back in Cana. And then in verse 46, he shows up in Capernaum, which was the hometown of Philip and uh, Andrew and Peter. And it was there in Capernaum that he did the second sign, the healing of the official's son. That was the second sign of seven. In John chapter 5, back in Jerusalem, Jesus is shown healing the man at the pool at the sheep gate. Uh, you'll remember uh, that Julian Russell uh, was here with us that Sunday and, and opened that passage vividly. Do you want to be healed? Uh, are you at the pool? And he, he preached powerfully, a beautiful sermon on that, that third sign. In John chapter 6, we are back at the Sea of Galilee. In verse 1, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In the fourth sign, and finally now today in verse 16, According to the ESV editors, Jesus walks on water. And even though the word is not used in this particular passage, here we have the fifth of the seven signs that we're going to look at in this little series uh, for Epiphany on uh, the seven signs of Jesus' mission. So um, Jesus, as the ESV editors write, walks on water. You know, it's interesting they use that expression because the word water doesn't show up in uh, John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Not once. Um, the word water doesn't show up, but instead we have the word sea. Of course, the sea is made of water, but it, it very consciously uses the word sea, which is the, uh, the Greek word thalassa. And, and actually, if you read Matthew and Mark's account of this same miracle, uh, they also use the word sea. They don't use the word water. I think there's some significance to that. We'll see in just a minute. But uh, the point is, in this setting of this important miracle, this sign of Jesus' mission, uh, we see the Lord Jesus walking on the sea. The setting is the sea, the, the sea, the Thalassan of Galilee. Uh, I've never been to Israel, I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but I've 
done a little bit of research, and I happen to know that the Sea of Galilee is approximately twice the size of a body of water you very likely do know, Louisville Lake. So take Louisville Lake and double it in terms of width and depth. It's about the same length. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is a little longer. But it's about uh, twice as wide. The Sea of Galilee is about twice as wide as the, the um, uh, Louisville Lake at its widest point. Go to its widest point and double it. And then imagine it being twice as deep as uh, Louisville Lake. In fact, the Sea of Galilee uh, has about uh, 141 feet at its maximum depth. It's quite a deep lake. Uh, interestingly, the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest lake in terms of its altitude of all the lakes in the world. There's only one lake lower in altitude than the Sea of Galilee, and guess what? It's the Salt Lake, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the only lake deeper, lower in altitude than the Sea of Galilee. So it's an interesting place. It's a, a very old place. It predates Israel. There, there are ancient references to this lake and this region, this sea, going back deeply into antiquity. It's a place that has had great significance for the Jewish people and for the Christian church. So I'd like for us to think about this setting, the setting of the Sea of Galilee, which uh, in John chapter 6, verse 1, uh, John helpfully tells us that the Sea of Galilee is the same place as the Sea of Tiberias. And that little reference is significant. We'll see maybe a bit more about that in a moment. So that's the setting. Now I want to let you know a little insight into what I'm going to be trying to do today. Um, if you look in the bulletin on page six, you'll notice uh, a tiny change. Uh, it's quite a subtle change. You may not have even noticed it. It's small, but it's quite a significant change in the bulletin. And it's actually going to reflect what I'm going to try to do today. You'll notice where it says reading God's word. That's the same as it's always been. But it now says, instead of applying God's word, which it, I think it said for a long time, um, today it says understanding and applying God's word. As I said, it's a small change. It doesn't really reflect any gigantic shift in anything. But it does make explicit something which is extremely important we do not want to jump to application until we have come to understand. I'm convinced a lot of the problems in church life come from the fact that we rush to application without so much as pausing to reflect, to learn, to understand what is God teaching us. Because we can't really apply it in the way God wants us to until we've come to understand it. And so I'm going to take a few minutes today uh, helping us to understand what is this passage teaching us. Now, I think this is a particularly good passage to be explicit about this because I've heard so many wonderful sermons applying 
Jesus walking on water. All right? I don't know if you've heard a lot of sermons on this passage or similar passages in Matthew and Mark who tell the same miracle. Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew and Mark do. And they use very similar terms. And it's interesting to me how many brilliant sermons I've heard about walking on water. And it often includes Jesus, but it very often jumps quickly to me walking on water. It jumps very quickly to me and you and us and our walking on water. There's, you know, in Matthew's telling of the story, uh, there's a significant role that Peter plays. Uh, It's very explicit. It describes Peter, once he sees Jesus, trying to walk on the water with Jesus. And if you remember the story, he makes maybe one step, and then he falls. And Jesus has to save Peter. And I've heard so many brilliant sermons about how we can walk on water if we will keep our eyes on Jesus. And the application is keep your eyes on Jesus and He'll help you walk on water. Well, don't try crossing uh, Louisville Lake this afternoon because the point of this story, the point of this miracle, the point of this sign is not you and me walking on water. The point of this miracle, the point of this sign is that Jesus walked on the sea. And unless we really listen to each part of that, we're going to miss it. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And of course, as it's about Jesus, it will definitely have application to us. But it will be different, I think, than if we start by thinking the stories about you and me and our desire desire to experience and be empowered and and do miracles in Jesus' name and all the things that we so often want to do in the Christian life. Uh, This passage has application to those things, but secondary application. The primary application has everything to do with Jesus walking on the sea, very specifically walking on the sea. He didn't walk across the pool at Siloam. He didn't walk across a bathtub. He walks across the sea. And that's very significant. Now, um, let me suggest to you that there are two important things for us to understand, and neither of them are about us directly. Two very important things for us to understand if we're going to apply this passage in the way we should. The first thing we need to understand is who Jesus is. See, this passage is a sign about Jesus. And this passage, this miracle, this sign is going to point us towards who Jesus is. And secondly, it's going to help explain what Jesus came to do. Once we get clear on those two things, then we're free to apply it in all kinds of creative ways. It has application to us here at Metrocrest. But let's start by understanding these two important lessons. First of all, who Jesus is. Uh, The passage begins in verse 16. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Matthew specifies that it was against them. John doesn't give us that detail. When they rode about three or four miles, uh, 
the other gospel accounts mention similar details. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad. Let's just pause for a minute. What does this tell us about who Jesus is? Well, there are lots of clues. It is just dense with clues. Now, interestingly, compared to Matthew and Mark, who tell the same miracle story, John's version is really stripped down. It doesn't mention Peter at all. It does say the disciples were there, but it doesn't mention Peter at all. It doesn't say anything about Peter following Jesus or falling in the water. It doesn't mention any of those details. But the details it does mention are highly significant. For instance, John is the only one that mentions the fact that they're crossing the sea to Capernaum. They have a destination. And the destination is across the sea. They have a destination, and the destination is important. They're crossing from one side to the other side. They're on a journey, and they have a destination. It's this town of Capernaum. And uh, so we get all those details, but, but those, are, those are really the way it's stripped down. It, it takes away most of the distractions. The details that are left, therefore, must be significant to John. John has a point, and the geography is going to help explain the theology. What's the significance of Jesus crossing from one place to another place? Well, there's all kind of theology there. But to a first century Jew, crossing a sea to get from one place to another place, and it involves a miracle especially in a passage, a chapter as as we have it, a chapter that has to do with the Passover and with Moses and the people of Israel making their way, being fed by the, the bread of heaven, the manna, right? We saw that last week. We see that again in the rest of chapter 6. In this context, and notice John plants this miracle story in the middle of a chapter about the Passover and Moses, and manna, and the way God provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. All right, He plants it specifically in the middle of this chapter. Why? Well, to a first century Jew, crossing the sea to get from point A to point B, involving a miracle, called to mind a specific miracle in the Old Testament. It, of course, called to mind the dividing of the sea by God as he led his people out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land, right? I mean, even we think of that when you, when you remind us of Moses and the Passover and the, the Jews wandering in the wilderness. Even people like us in 21st century Carrollton, we remember, oh yeah, I, re- I remember that. Well, let me tell you, it was a defining miracle for God's Old Testament people. It was the defining miracle. It was was more than God merely delivering the people from captivity in Egypt. It was God delivering His people into freedom. It was a sign of His covenant relationship with them. It was a sign of all that God was doing in their lives as individuals and in their life as a people. God had chosen them as His people and He was leading them into this freedom, this glorious freedom 
and they sang about it and they celebrated it. Every year at the Passover, they remembered it. So this chapter begins in in Passover, over in chapter 6, verse uh, 4. The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this was on their minds. And here's Jesus getting from point A to point B by crossing the sea. And rather than dividing it, which is a miracle, He walked on it, which was a miracle. And by the way, it's, it's not a random miracle. Let me get you to flip back in the Bible. I told you you'd want to have your Bible, right? Flip back to Job chapter 9. It's way back in the Old Testament. Flip back to Job chapter 9. Uh, you'll find uh, Job beginning at page 417. Flip on back to Job chapter 9, verse 8. Now, you and I might have trouble finding these verses, but a first century Jew wouldn't because this was part of the Messianic expectation. Look at Job chapter 9, and then let's start at verse 5. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens. Then notice the rest of verse 8 on page 422. And trampled the waves of the sea. Wait a minute. This, this is Job, an Old Testament writer, talking about the God of Israel. The, the one who sets and removes the mountains. The, the one who, who shakes the earth. The one who commands the sun. He's the one who tramples on the waves of the sea. So you see what this miracle, this sign is telling us about this man? Put it back over to John 6. This passage is one of several signs, several passages, helping you and me to understand that Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. He's not a little God. He's not part of God. He's not like God. He is God. And there's another clue in this same passage. If you look down at verse 20, and this has been pointed out before. But this is another time when in verse 21, sorry, verse 20, Jesus said to them, It is I. It is I. It's interesting. In verse 19, they are frightened. In verse 21, they are glad. What happens? What takes them from being frightened to being glad? What took them from being frightened to being glad is what can take you and me from being frightened and overwhelmed to being glad and hopeful. It's the realization that when Jesus said, it is I, he's taking an Old Testament way of God talking about himself. It is I is, is something a Jew wouldn't have said in this way. In fact, it's, it's something that would have been viewed as outrageous and blasphemous. Look across the page at John chapter 5, verse 18. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the, the enemies of Jesus, the religious authorities, they had heard Jesus say things like this before. They had heard Jesus talk about God as his father. They had heard Jesus use similar formulas to describe himself, such as it is I. He's used these words before. He uses the I am formula multiple times in the Gospel of John. Every time Jesus says it is I or I am, what's contained in there is a sign, a something pointing towards who Jesus is. And it's so important for us to be clear on who Jesus is. John wants us to understand who Jesus is so that we can believe Him and we can trust in Him and we can walk with Him. We can go where He leads us. It's not that He sends some supernatural blast of power and I'm all of a sudden able to do crazy, miraculous things. You won't see me out at Lake Louisville trying to skip across the lake unless God tells me to. Because the point isn't something empowering me and what I want to do. It is this amazing truth that in Jesus, God Himself has come to us. He has brought Himself to us. And now we live our life with Him. And yes, He will empower us to do what He wants us to do. But it's not a miracle of our choosing. It's not our deciding, our agenda. It's us living out His agenda with His power because He's God. So John wants to make that plain. And each of these signs is pointing towards that. Turning water to wine, raising the uh, official's daughter. Each of these miracles is pointing towards who Jesus is. And each of these miracles gives us a glimpse, like this passage in Job chapter 9, to who Jesus is. John wants us to know that Jesus is God. And then in verse 22, on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples. His disciples had gone away. Down in verse 24, the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor His disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum. And notice the last two words, seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. He wanted to know more about him. And that's what Jesus is doing to this day. Drawing people to himself, those who are seeking him. Um, Who Jesus is, is extremely important for us to understand before we try to apply it. Jesus is God himself. The one who tramples the waves is the one in the boat with us. And that makes all the difference. We'll come back to that in a moment. Number two, what Jesus came to do. God divided the water of the Red Sea to lead his people from Egypt into the promised land. Again, geography sheds light on our theology. This sign has everything to do with Jesus crossing the sea. Jesus as God in the flesh leading his people, right? That's what Jesus came to do. But There's more to it than just Jesus leading us in some um, random pathway. Where is He leading us? What does He want us to do? Is He leading us towards personal fulfillment? 
you listen to the modern church, that's what Jesus came to do. Lead me to my best life now. Help, help me have as much fun and have as much stuff as I can possibly have. And Christianity in some areas uh, has been twisted to be turned into this, this religion of self-actualization. So the journey for many 21st century Christians becomes uh, me developing in my fullest sense, me becoming all that I'm meant to be. Well, I'm sure Jesus does want us to develop into all that we're meant to be. But that's not the point of this story. That's not the point of this miracle. That's not the point of this sign. Jesus is leading his people as God led the people of Israel out of bondage into freedom. But even that can be misunderstood. And that's exactly what had happened to the Jewish theology of the previous 500 years. Um, God had miraculously brought his people back to the promised land and rather than embracing what God was calling them to, what did they do? They hunkered down and what emerged was this hideous pharisaical way of viewing God, which was everything about me and us and a very inward-looking, self-focused theology, all about rule-keeping, all about doing religious things. It became very much an inward-looking religion. Well, there are a number of clues in this passage that make it very plain Jesus had a different purpose. What are some of the clues? Well, the first clue is John chapter 6, verse 1. Galilee, the word Galilee. Galilee. The word Galilee shows up in John's gospel myriad times. Just read through the gospel, John. You'll see Galilee over and over and over again. Of course, you know the word Galilee. We all know the word Galilee. You know what Galilee means? It means district. It means district. And the full name of Galilee was Galilee Ha-goyim. Goyim is the Hebrew word for nations or Gentiles or, or heathen. Galilee was the region, the district of the heathen. Why was that? Because when Israel was captured by the various armies that came over the centuries and captured them, they came in through Galilee. Going way back in history, the, these conquering armies from Assyria to Babylon to the Romans, they all came through Galilee. They marched into Jerusalem. And as a result, that area was a real uh, ethnic mess. It was a complete mixture of ethnicities. It was a complete mixture of nationalities. No wonder they called it the Sea of Tiberias the Roman emperor, because there were so many Romans who lived there. There were so many Gentiles who lived there. So there's a clue that what is happening here in this miracle is happening in the district of the nations. What is happening in this district is happening in the district of the heathen. It does involve Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. The miracles that he works there are highly significant. But the fact that these miracles happen among the Gentiles, well, it's extremely important to understanding what this passage is teaching us. 
in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, Isaiah the prophet actually uses the expression Galilee of the nations. It's the way he describes Galilee, Galilee of the nations. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, Matthew uses the expression Galilee of the nations. So the fact that this is happening in the, in the, the district of the nations is very significant. We won't be able to apply it unless we remember that. Because you see, this passage is not about me being led out of my personal bondage to sin, which is a reality, into my personal freedom. It's actually not about coming out of bondage into freedom at all. It's about coming out of bondage into mission. They were being set free to be witnesses to Jesus. That's the meaning of this passage. It has everything to do with what Jesus came into the world to do, which isn't about some deeply personal struggle. It has application there, but the, the more important application, the application that gives significance to me and to you and to us, is the fact that Jesus came into the world so that the nations might be delivered. It's, it's Jesus. It's almost like the reverse of the Exodus. In the Exodus story, they leave bondage to come to freedom. Jesus, who has come from glory, comes to the nations over the sea. <laughs> he walks across the sea. He Himself, in His incarnation, comes to the world to the nations, to the heathen, to people like you and me. All right, so let's, let's go to application. Bear with me for a moment. Think that maybe some of this is right. How do we apply it? Well, it turns out it, it really has all kinds of application to me personally, but not primarily. What it really teaches me is that, well, that I should have a framework like Jesus's. He's God. I can trust Him. I can walk with Him. I can believe in Him. I can live my life in dependence on Him. And doing that, I want to do what He does. It's not about me crossing Louisville Lake. It's about us crossing what divides us from the nations around us. Having a heart of love towards those who are very different from us which is what Jesus did. It's what He was teaching His disciples. You know, it's an interesting thing on Installation Sunday. This miracle was observed by 12 people. <laughs> it's written down for us so that we all get the benefit of, of the story and the sign. But it was primarily for the 12. They were there watching it. They experienced it. Peter was the one, according to Matthew, who stepped out and tried to, in, in faith to do what he saw Jesus doing. You can't do it can't do it. No matter how much you want to, you can't do it in your own strength, can you? We all learn that eventually. Well, to the two men who are being installed today, part of your job as elders of this congregation will be to point people towards the sovereign Jesus who reigns over the world, who calls us into mission, who calls us to be like Him, to cross into the nations, into the world with the gospel. So, 
A few minutes ago, if you were here when I gave the announcements, I mentioned our little, little chili cook-off. Uh, I don't think there's anything that sounds more fun that I can imagine. A square dance and chili. All right? Saturday, February 26th, 5.30 p.m. I hope everybody at MetroCrest will be here. I hope our elders will be here. I hope our deacons will be here. I hope all of our leaders, all the people will come and have a fabulous time. But I honestly do hope that all of you will take a moment to think about someone who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't know about the fellowship of life among God's people, and that God's people have fun. God's people aren't long-faced and negative and sour. God's people have fun. God's people go to banquets where the water's turned into wine. That's the kind of God we worship. And I encourage you to cross that sea with Jesus and invite those people that you know who don't know Metrocrest or don't know Jesus Christ and invite them to come. We're not going to have any sermons. We're not going to pass out tracts. But Jesus will be here with us. And they will see Jesus in you. They'll see Jesus when you invite them. They'll see Jesus when you're here smiling at them and having a good time and welcoming the newcomer and welcoming the stranger. Having a particular heart for those who are different from us. Reaching out to whoever's here. Whoever God brings through the door, we want to show them the love of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. I hope our leaders will live that out. I hope you will, you will do your best, elders, deacons, team leaders, to live this out. So, I mean it. We, we made, a, I think, 150 of these. It's more than enough for everybody to take one. Grab a couple of them. We can make as many as you want. Got lots of copy paper. We'll make as many as you want. And then just invite a friend. Invite your neighbor. Invite a colleague at work. Invite a student goes to school with you. I mean, there's nothing threatening about it. It's a chili cook-off in square dance. The only threatening part is square dancing. All right? Otherwise, how threatening is that? Use it as an opportunity to invite someone that you care about and see what the Holy Spirit will do. Maybe He will use it to bring them to MetroCrest. Maybe He'll even bring them to Jesus because that's what Jesus does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what MetroCrest does. That's what we're all about. Reaching out in love to people whom Jesus puts in our path.